Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to the We Podcast, and I'm your host, Sarah Menares. I believe that we all need a space to speak our authentic truth, as well as a space to hear the truths of real and vulnerable people so that we can better understand that we are not alone. Hearing the experiences of others encourages us to step into the light in our own lives. It is through owning our stories and learning to speak our truth that we are able to grow and rise above the challenges we face and step into the full power of all we were created to be. You will hear many topics discussed in this space with people from all over the world. We hope that you feel welcomed into a community of growth and that this space will invite you to uncover the absolute greatness that is already inside of you. Oh, and don't forget, check out all the We Podcast episodes as well as the We Spot blog over at thewespot.com. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hey girl, it's me. You're listening to episode number 63, The Power of Support and Vulnerability. In this episode, I get to chat with Savannah Howe. Savannah is a Colorado native of 23 years. She has been married to her husband for five years in December, and they just welcomed their new baby girl into the world in June. About a year or so ago, Savannah realized that she needed to take a serious look at what she wanted for her life. She realized that she wanted to educate and inspire others through her story and has felt very called to do so. Savannah has always had a passion for helping others. Ever since she can remember, she has wanted to support others to overcome trauma and obstacles that were similar to what she experienced. As a young child, she was abused, neglected, and exposed to other traumas, but she knew God had a plan and a purpose. She has put in and is still putting in work to overcome the traumas, and she wishes to encourage and give hope to others. She hopes to continue with her blog, finishing writing her book, as well as speaking to adults, kids, teachers, parents, and anyone who will listen about her story to help educate and inspire. Savannah is definitely an inspiration. We have an open conversation about her past and how she's now in a place of overcoming. She's a true warrior spirit, and I can't wait for you to hear her insights. All right, so here we go. Here is my interview with Savannah. Welcome to this episode of the WE Podcast. I'm very excited to have the amazing Savannah Howe here today to chat with me. I know Savannah, by the little that I know about your story, you have quite an impactful, awesome story that, well, hard story too, (laughs) that I just love your heart for sharing with other people so that you can help them and lift them up through the things that you've gone through. So thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you and and share my story with other people as well. So like you said, I have a passion for it. So Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. So awesome. So we met, that's usually where I start. We met through, you attended one of the meetups and the We Are Women Rising meetups. Little plug here for all of you in Northern <laughs> Colorado. So you came to a meetup and I got to meet you there and you were pregnant and that was awesome. And that's kind of how we got connected, right? Yeah, that was, I came to that and met you there and friended you on Facebook right away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you kind of start from the beginning? Does that feel comfortable for you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? My story, I come from a broken home. So my dad kind of left my mom when I was six months old. So, and my mom actually was living in a tent when I was pretty young. And my dad kind of took me out of her custody and kind of did a joint custody type thing. And my father actually met another woman who he had dated previously. The story kind of starts there, I guess. You know, my mom was kind of always absent, even when I was over 
at her house. She would always lock herself in her room, and I didn't really kind of understand why for a long time. And, you know, my older sister kind of was there and kind of took care of me where she would play with me and make dinners with me and stuff. Like, obviously, she was my sister, so she'd play with me. But when my father met this other woman, I just kind of got a weird vibe initially, and I was pretty young. Like, I don't know what my age was, probably like six or so. I noticed when we went over to her house, she was very aggressive. There was a time that I witnessed her actually hit her son. And from there on out, I kind of obviously got that vibe from her that it was unsafe. You know, I I Mm. was super uncomfortable. And just as kind of time progressed, she ended up moving in with us. Like, and I was probably still around seven or so. You know, we all kind of started to collaborate. My dad ended up marrying her. And she became super verbally abusive to me. She would tell me awful things, like how I was a mistake, I should have been an abortion, she wished I was dead, a lot of different things. Just mm, That's terrible. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it, it, that chipped away at me for a long time. It chipped away at my heart. I started to believe those lies. And then not too shortly after they moved in, she became physically abusive to me as well. So the biggest story that I really kind of remember and you know, with trauma, as you know, it can manifest in different ways. This is really my story of what I remember. I was probably in third or fourth grade, and my grandma would often come to lunch with me, just kind of surprise me, bring McDonald's and that type of thing. And I didn't know she was bringing me food that day, and so I packed a lunch and whatnot. And my grandma had a tendency to only do things for me and not her son. So that usually really frustrated her and kind of triggered her anger and stuff like that. And so I put my my lunch in the fridge that it was I was supposed to bring that day. She came home and saw my lunch in the fridge and she asked me if I made lunch for the next day. I told her no, but my grandma came over and had lunch with me and she got this look on her face that just the solid like very angry look and I was like, "Okay, here we go." So I just started to try to do my homework and stuff and her lunch or my brother's lunchbox flew over my head and I just took a deep breath in tried not to anger her any further just do what I was what I was doing and the next thing I know big bottle of Dawn dish soap hit the back of my head and she tore around the kitchen island and started beating me about four and five times in the head Mm. my dad was in his study bedroom thing and he came out and pulled her off of me And this was like the big, obviously the big thing that I remember. This may have been the first time she hit me, but there are several other times that I remember too, you know, and I went to bed that night just feeling like I was going to die. Like how old were you at that time? I was about in third or fourth grade. I think I can't remember Mm -hmm. specifics. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, like I said, that was kind of the biggest thing that I remember. Like the first one, at least there were other times that I would anger her by something I did or said. Sometimes I didn't even provoke it. You know, I I can remember at least four or five solid times that this type of thing happened. So, like I said, the physical abuse eventually kind of settled down. But when I was in fifth grade, is like I couldn't take it anymore because my dad and her both were like, if you say anything, you're going to be taken away from us and used a lot of scare tactics mm. to not say mm-hmm. anything. But in fifth grade, I wanted to tell someone, like, I couldn't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I told one of my teachers, and of course, mandatory reporting, she had to tell my principal. My principal called my dad in, and my dad ended up managing to convince the principal that I made everything up. So Mm -hmm. CPS was never called or reported. And I only know this because we did a background check for some people that we were living with, kind of an extensive one, right, because they were wanting to foster the social workers like this was never on any reports like this was never reported Mm. so that's how I know it wasn't (laughs) and then the teacher from there on out just kind of treated me different because she thought I lied she thought I lied Mm. about a big thing like you don't lie about that (laughs) Mm, right you know I ended up not learning not to trust people because I felt like Mm. if I said anything again that nobody was going to believe me so that was kind of the stepmom part of it. And then kind of around, I think it was my sixth grade or seventh grade year, 
kind of going to my mom's side because my mom was pretty much this that way like I said before just absent when I was even over at her house because I did every other weekend pretty much mm-hmm. so like I said in, in sixth or seventh grade my mom my sister and I all went to a family event my uncle was throwing an event and we just went up to see him and you know I made this comment to my sister like stop mothering me or yes mom or something like that it really bothered her and my mom pulled me aside and she's like do you know why this bothered her or why kind of why she reacted the way she did and I was like no she's like well when you were younger I was a meth addict and then it all kind of came to me it's like that's why you were always absent that's why you were always in your room and stuff Mm. like that I mean, it hit me really hard where it's like, you know, I was about 10 years old at this point. Like, that was a lot for me to (laughs) for me to hear. Yeah. And at that point, everything kind of shifted for me. I was depressed. I, you know, just had a hard time coping. And my coping mechanism that I ended up picking up was self-harm. So I ended up my self-harm was cutting. Mm -hmm. And so that's when that kind of started. It didn't happen a lot. It didn't happen all the time. It was, you know, when I got stressed out or something like that, it just, that's what was, or the abuse was really bad at home because the verbal abuse continued until I moved out. So. Is your dad still married to this lady? They did get divorced. Oh, okay. About three years ago, I think. So yeah, when I, I started self-harming and that type of thing. And my mom was also a heavy drinker at this point too. So that was something that was her coping mechanism. And, and then when I was still in middle school. I did witness her try to commit suicide. She had a lot of mental health stuff kind of going on, and I was told that this wasn't the first time. Hmm. My older sister was kind of the one having to live through that and kind of having to really help her, unfortunately, and take care of her when she was this way. And then there was an attempt where my mom tried to overdose on pills, and she ended up going to a, a facility to try to get help. She was put on a medication that she can't drink with or else it could be fatal if she got dehydrated, which we know alcohol (laughs) dehydrates you. So Mm -hmm. they were like, you can't drink. Well, knowing this is I was like, okay, this was it. Like, she's going to stop drinking. She's going to get better. Well, one day at a parent teacher conference, she called me and she was plastered and I panicked like I freaked out. Rightfully so, I Mm -hmm. think. Yeah. (laughs) And that was kind of it for me. I was like, you know, this is a toxic relationship. You you need to get help. Like, I can't keep doing this. And so I ended up not having contact with her for a long time after that. But then the, the verbal abuse and the emotional abuse with my stepmom, like I said, never really ended. My sophomore year in high school, uh, like I said, I'm kind of jumping around, but my sophomore year in high school is I just, I was done. Like, I just... I was starting to self-harm a lot more often and I was angry like I was angry at God I was angry at myself my situation you know and I didn't have any self-worth I really hated myself like I just you know I was I was depressed I Mm. and I was off non-medications at this point an antidepressant and stuff like that but it just took the edge off it didn't help with my symptoms Mm -hmm. so I mean at that point I was just like I'm just gonna do what I'm gonna do my dad ended up moving here to Greeley with her at this point and they ended up having my two little siblings as well and I ended up staying in Longmont with my grandma my sophomore year because I wanted to finish out my sophomore year due to my choir was going to go to New York City and I was like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity Mm. like they got to sing on Broadway the whole thing so I was like I really want to stay so they let me but that year, I just I started hanging out with the wrong people. I made a lot of bad decisions, you know, and I just, like I said, I had no self-worth at this point. And there was one night that I had gone to Greeley to stay with them over a weekend or something like that, my dad and stepmom, and we got into a huge fight about some of my decisions that I was making, and there was a lot of verbal abuse that happened. You know, I don't remember exactly what was said, but I do remember that there was a lot. <laughs> and I went to bed just feeling empty, worthless, unloved. And I just, I hit rock bottom. And I ended up trying to commit suicide for the second time. 
Mm. And I, I blacked out. So I kind of came to and I realized what was going on. And, you know, I kind of at this point in my life, I knew who God was. I knew, I, like I said, I knew who he was, but I didn't have a relationship with him. And at this point, I heard God's voice saying, you're okay. I love you. I need you to come back to me. So I kind of made that mental shift where I was like, I need to stop this destructive behavior. Like I can't mm. keep doing this. So did you, can I ask, <laughs> did you take pills or? I cut. That was my, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. I have two deep scars on, on my hand where mm. I tried to commit suicide. So, mm-hmm. Well, thanks for being open about that. I, I yeah. mean, I want to pause here for mm-hmm. just a second because this is something that, I've definitely never had anybody on the podcast talk openly about, and I think it's so important because mm-hmm. it's so much more common than people think that it is, mm-hmm. especially for teenage girls mm-hmm. to self-harm and cut and really that becoming their coping skill. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to talk openly about it, I think is so helpful and gives a lot of people either who are in that situation insight, but also I think there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are probably moms mm-hmm. of teenage girls. And it's a scary thing. It's mm-hmm. a scary thing when somebody that you love is self-harming. Mm-hmm. But can you give us a little bit of like your thought behind it? Maybe I don't want to put everybody in the same box because everybody (laughs) has a different experience. And I think there are some common threads Mm -hmm. to when that becomes a coping skill. And I think you could provide people some awesome insights. So if you could kind of give us a little more about that, I I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it's different for everybody. Um, So just sharing from my experience, kind of my thought process behind that it really started when my mom told me that she was a meth addict for that. It just was, I was overwhelmed. I was stressed out. I didn't know how to really cope with anything. And, um, I, it was actually introduced to me, I think by a friend in school, you know, it initially started where I was stressed. I was numb was the biggest thing where I wanted to feel again because I, and like I said, it was just a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. So, It was a physical release. And then as it kind of progressed, where I was doing it more often, it was the same type of thing. I was empty. I was numb. It was just that, you know, where Mm -hmm. I could feel again. I could feel something at least, even if it was pain, even if, you know, whatever the case may be. So that was really kind of the motive Mm -hmm. behind it. And the kind of what I was thinking that whole time was I knew it was wrong. I knew I shouldn't be hurting myself. But it was worth it to me in that time where that was the only thing I knew to really have that release, to Mm -hmm. really deal with the trauma that I was experiencing. And this is something that my therapist and I have actually talked about, where it's like, even though I tried to commit suicide, that could have been what kept me alive all those years, where it was just, I was dealing with so much trauma, so much Mm -hmm. stuff coming at me that it was the only thing that I knew how to do, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So did your parents ever say anything about it or? So during my first attempt and I kind of skipped over that part, but during my first attempt, I told my dad that I was self-harming because I think I told someone and they kind of were like, you need to tell your dad. So I told him and that's when he took me to the doctor. I didn't tell him it was a suicide attempt. I didn't really feel like I was going to be taken seriously anyways. So Mm. I didn't feel Mm like it was worth it so that's when he took me to the doctor to get on antidepressants and when I continued throughout high school my dad actually did because I went to him during the suicide attempt the second time and he told me that he knew I was cutting he told me that he knew that he's seen the scars and didn't say anything and didn't do anything Mm. about it so they knew (laughs) okay so we need to talk about this (laughs) (laughs) So you said earlier you were numb and it was Mm -hmm. to feel, which I think is a common thread with cutting. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. Mm -hmm. And I would love to talk a little bit more about it because I think for you and I mean, I'm hearing all of these terrible things happening and essentially being raised by parents or women who 
were very negative and didn't have their stuff together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would curse there. I should. Uh, no. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, not even able to take care of themselves in a healthy way, mm-hmm. let alone you. And I think as a child in that situation, you learn to shut everything off mm-hmm. in order to cope, in order to, it sounds like you were probably like a, a parent or a grown-up mm-hmm. at a young age. Yeah. And so then when you shut off the negative, you also shut off the positive. You can't pick and choose. It's mm-hmm. all shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've definitely experienced that where just going through therapy and stuff like that is I've noticed that, I don't remember a lot of things like I remember the trauma experiences and exactly kind of what you're saying is I have repressed so much that it just it's not there. Like Mm -hmm. I can sort of put pieces back together, but it's super foggy. You know, my sister and I have recently talked about stuff and she's like, oh, don't you remember this? And I'm like, no, not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it takes me a bit. Sometimes I can remember it eventually after details kind of come in. Sometimes I don't. So mm-hmm. it's exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I can totally relate to you in that. Mm-hmm. I have a trauma past also. Mm-hmm. And people will ask me questions and I'm like, I think I was five, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It is such a skewed view of timelines yeah. and <laughs> all of that. I mean, I think that's our brains protecting us, yeah. essentially. So I appreciate you talking openly oh, about yeah. that. <laughs> I think people need to have more insight and more awareness around it. The fact then, too, and one thing... I have so much. Sorry. (laughs) No, you're good. It's a big story. (laughs) I can really relate to you in in a big thing that I talk about in my book, too, is feeling as a child like I wasn't fought for, Mm -hmm. like feeling like it wasn't important, like being protected was not a priority. So therefore, why should I even care? You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I feel that from you too and that you told you tried to get help you tried to get support and it actually made things worse for you Mm -hmm. it breaks my heart because gosh it sends such a message it's not a spoken message but it's a message that you feel Mm -hmm. within you of well there's my worth and my value and I'm not worth being protected Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I, I definitely felt that growing up is something that I, my dad ended up checking out and he was being neglectful and mm-hmm. it really weighed on me where it's like, you know, this person physically abused your kid. Like I personally having my three month old, like I can't even imagine mm-hmm. one hurting her at all mm-hmm. and two not being there for her, not doing what it takes to keep her safe mm-hmm. you know and my dad would say to Sean or my stepmom that you know if you hit my kid again then we're done I'm leaving but it happened several times mm-hmm. the verbal abuse happened and you know eventually he stopped being that advocate for me so it was hard mm-hmm. <laughs> to say the least yeah. that You know, I did feel unloved. I did feel unprotected. And I felt like I had to do it alone. And I really did. Like, that was, you know, I had to deal with my mental health by myself or I had panic attacks. I had major anxiety, obviously, with self-harming and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So that was, you know, I had to do it alone, which really impacted my adult life. I agree that we, we need to talk about it. It's, you know, something that I've recently kind of, like, all right, I need to be fully vulnerable. Like, my point is to help people kind of realize these things, talk mm-hmm. about it, be vulnerable about it, even though it scares me. But at the same time, is my goal is to help youth, not just at-risk youth, but youth in general. You know, this is something that I want to actually do as a speaking engagements mm-hmm. where I talk to kids about these things, share my story And it needs to be addressed. It needs to be talked about. Yeah. I feel that's really important. Totally. I totally agree. And if you're listening and you're a parent and you notice 
your child their arms or scars or whatever and telling you (laughs) (laughs) well say something Mm -hmm. I think parents are so afraid to say something that you know if they just don't say anything it'll go away Mm -hmm. maybe but do you think things would maybe have gone differently for you if your dad would have talked openly to you about it or would have tried to support you or understand you in that way I definitely think so I think that would have probably strengthened our relationship a little bit I mean not a lot but it would have made me feel like oh he actually cares like this is something that because I knew it was something I shouldn't be doing that it was like okay I have support in this that support piece would have been huge and you know at that point maybe would have figured out a different medication figure out how to get better so I think it, it would have changed mm-hmm. if we had talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of going back is like I told you, I, you know, we decided to kind of commit to Christ and surrender that. And my grandma had actually was like invited the family to go to a church she was going to. And as soon as I got there, I felt this like overwhelmingly sense of love and belonging when I got there. Mm-hmm. It was like something I've never experienced before was like wow this is somewhere I need to be participated in the youth group that my family actually didn't want me to really do they wanted me to put school and work in front of God and doing what I was doing so they're like you need to find rides if you want to do this Hmm. because I wasn't driving at this point and I was about 16 they didn't take me to get my license they didn't want to do any of that for whatever reason And so I I did. I got rides and I made it work. There was one night that my stepmom just became super angry, started throwing things. I was just trying to do laundry. I didn't provoke her at all. You know, she would, again, kind of started up on the verbal abuse. She said that she wished I was abortion, wasn't there. She wished I was dead. She was holding a knife in her hand. My stepbrother kind of stepped in and told me to go while they kind of disagreed and stuff like that she went to her room I went to my room and this was a youth group night so after youth group I pulled a leader aside and I was I told her kind of what was happening and she told me to write everything down that had happened that night and show it to my dad when he got back from his business trip because that's when where he was gone he wasn't here during this and so I did and his response to what I had wrote was you didn't tell me anything I didn't already know so at that point, I was like, you checked out. I, I need to move out. This is unsafe. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up telling him, I was like, if you don't let me move out, I'm going to say something to the school because there's two younger kids here and my, my stepbrother that are going, you know, she wasn't that way towards them. But I'm like, if she's doing this to me, this is unsafe. Mm-hmm. You're like, I'm not, I'm not messing around. So he was like, well, you left me with no options. So, and then my best friend and I were kind of talking about it. And she was like, well, let's talk to my mom to see if you can maybe stay with us. Well, one Sunday I was talking with a group of youth leaders and I was telling them that I I needed to move out. And I didn't give them a lot of details, but enough to let them know that I was unsafe and just needed to leave. One of the youth leaders pulled me aside after that conversation and she told me that she wanted me to move in with her and her family. And let me give you a little background on that. Her and I didn't have a relationship, really, at this point. She had maybe given me a couple rides. I didn't know her that well. But that sat with me where I was like, huge shock. And it made me really start to think. And as the time went on, my best friend and I were still talking about, was talking to her mom and, this really just sat heavily on my heart. Like I, I was thinking about this and I kind of got to the point even before my best friend and I had discussed it with her mom that maybe I should move in with this family. And like I said, it just, God was working on my heart in that. And my best friend's mom actually was like, you know, it's probably not best that you stay with us. And that was kind of my answer. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm going to move in with this family. When I got home, after I decided what I was going to do, my dad's like, you're not moving out and used a lot of scare tactics to Mm. to keep me at the house. And he's like, well, you can stay with whoever you want when I'm gone. 
So I was like, okay. So I talked to this family still, and I was like, hey, my dad has a trip coming up. Are you okay if I stay with you guys? Of course, I knew the answer to that. When I first got there, it was like really awkward, you know, because I didn't know them that well. But that went away really easily. Just like just that day that I was there, the first day that I was there. And I just felt, again, that sense of love, safety and belonging Mm. at this house. And I with this family and it was something completely something that I didn't know. I, you know, this was the first time that I felt this way that relationship continued to grow and I had a lot of walls built up because of my situation I like we've talked about I didn't know how to trust anyone Mm -hmm. slowly those walls began to fall as I learned to just kind of follow and trust God and she's been a huge has had a huge impact in my life you know she's still around in my life huge part of my life the whole family is and they I consider them my family and they've just helped me through so much seven years later (laughs) they're still there and they've encouraged me it's like you know we're not going anywhere Mm -hmm. and that's something that being vulnerable with them and trusting them is something that it just is foreign to me I still struggle with it (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know just I constantly believe those lies still and I mean over the past couple months, I've been able to not believe those lies, which has been huge. But it's still a struggle. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they still come into my mind and I have to work through those. Yeah. That was huge. Yeah. And then <laughs> there's still more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I ended up moving back to Longmont because I was 17 and my dad ended up getting a job in Arizona. There was no way I was moving with them. Mm-hmm. So I moved back to Longmont with the, my grandma again and found a church and that type of thing kind of skip forward a little bit and then I met my husband Stephen and you know we got obviously we got married and that type of thing and our first year marriage you know you hear that the first year is the hardest Mm -hmm. well it was especially hard for me because my mental health took a turn really for the worst I was off medications at this point but I got into a severe depression I had panic attacks every night I could hardly get out of bed let alone off the couch, didn't really want to go to work. I forced myself to. Mm-hmm. I was working a part-time job at that time, so it was like, okay, I can do this at least a little bit. It just, it was hard. <laughs> Jamie, the, the leader I was talking about, she just encouraged me. She was, you know, why don't you see a therapist? Like, let's do something about this, What kind of what's going on. She didn't know everything that was going on because I didn't tell her I wasn't being vulnerable with her and just kind of was like no I can do this myself Mm -hmm. and I was like no it's fine I got it I've dealt with this before I'm fine obviously I wasn't fine and it took me three years before I decided to get help and I decided it was good to see a psychiatrist because I had seen my primary he put me on an antidepressant again and it worked initially and then it didn't and then Mm -hmm. I tanked so I saw the psychiatrist and you know, Jamie and I were talking actually is like, what is the worst that can come out of this? Like, you know, at least you're going to get help. And I was like, the worst thing that he could possibly say is that I have bipolar disorder. And that was because my stepmom had bipolar one. Hmm. And that was what my experience was, is the the manic, the violence is really what I contributed to that, too. So I was like, that was going to be the worst thing. Hmm. Five minutes into that session with my psychiatrist, he diagnosed me with bipolar two. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't hear anything after that. <laughs> and so I, I went home and I researched what bipolar two was and I realized that there was a difference. Bipolar one, like I said, really deals with the manic. So the extremes up and downs, they have a baseline of quote unquote normal people normal, <laughs> which is just the baseline. And like I said, they have extreme highs, extreme lows. You know, like I said, I contributed that with anger uh, because I was in violence because that's what I was exposed to. Mm-hmm. Bipolar two, their baseline is lower than like normal, quote unquote, normal people normal. So they live in a constant state of depression when they're low. It's super low. Their high is generally going to be up to the baseline level. That's how I understand bipolar mm-hmm. two. So after I kind of researched that, I was like, okay, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And so we just went through trying to get medications under control. And I sort of struggled in my faith where it's like, this is 
hard. This is not what I expected my life to look like, you know, and I wasn't angry, but I was trying to figure out. I was confused. I didn't know what was going on and it was hard. Mm-hmm. And then I got pregnant and we decided to get off my medication because my psychiatrist was like, I don't know really how it's going to affect the baby. So I got off and I was like determined to get through my whole pregnancy without getting back on medication. I was going to be fine. Again, I wasn't fine. <laughs> it happened, I thought, pretty quickly. I think my husband may say differently, but I thought it happened pretty quickly where, you know, I was doing okay and then I wasn't. So I, my anxiety kicked up. I had panic attacks. My depression was pretty bad. I missed three weeks of work because I just I couldn't get a handle on it. And I decided to see a different psychiatrist kind of get not a second opinion, but to kind of see the second opinion on the medication. really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Plus, I didn't jive well with my psychiatrist. So, you know, when I went to that appointment, he's like, it's really a shame that you got off these medications because these medications aren't necessarily attributed with anything with babies like in your pregnancy. Plus, your baby would have already been exposed to it before you found out so it wasn't he was like it's it wasn't gonna be a big deal Mm -hmm. I was like okay that's that's great (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so we got back on medication and I'm only now starting to get back to sort of a normal level and you know after we had her my daughter super into the postpartum depression it hit me really hard like I said I'm just now kind of starting to get back where my medications are sort of level and I I did I hit rock bottom again my depression was bad I had thoughts of self-harm I started having suicidal ideation and it was rough you know and but like I said it's starting to get better I'm not having those thoughts anymore my faith is still strong I still have you know like I said those people in my life it's been a long road you know I've suffered through this mental health process for almost five years Mm -hmm. and it took me three to get help and that's something that I want to tell people too is seeking help and is not weak Mm. it's something that is brave it's showing your strength Mm -hmm. because you need to admit that there's something going on and that's not an easy process (laughs) speaking from experience that's my story (laughs) in length (laughs) yeah it's amazing thank you for sharing it yeah it's so true I mean so many people are afraid Mm -hmm. to admit I'm struggling I this is going on with me I'm not perfect Mm -hmm. I I have a hard time they want to struggle in silence which is so sad to Mm -hmm. me because there are so many people out there who are willing to help. Mm-hmm. And I love that you've also been an advocate for yourself. Like, yeah, this person doesn't really fit for me. I'm going to find somebody who does. I, I see so many people do that. Like stay with people who aren't a good fit mm-hmm. because they feel like they have to or something. But putting yourself out there and saying, I'm going to find the people. This is my village. This is my tribe. These are my people who I need. And we all need that Mm -hmm. yeah and I was gonna stay with this psychiatrist until I got pregnant and then I was like oh I need to do something different because I didn't like him Mm -hmm. and I think my process in that how I processed it was why I was gonna stay is just it's too hard to find another one Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm gonna Mm -hmm. find another one yeah and I think that's where my mindset was until I got pregnant where I was like no I need the best what's best for my daughter like I need to do something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then so my therapist kind of recommended a bunch of different people and she had a strong suggestion on one of them. It was kind of a God thing. They were like, it's going to take six to eight weeks before you can see this person. I was like, okay. So I filled out all the paperwork when I was there in the office and they're like, actually, I have an appointment that just canceled tomorrow. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So and then I got in and it was great. So. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I love it when that happens. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. I think you touched on something else that's important. And for any of us, it doesn't ever stop. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't ever 
totally go away. It's something we have to continue to work on and fight for and grow in and change and sometimes even just embrace. Mm -hmm. Especially with having a mental illness like bipolar, it's it's a chemical imbalance where it's like, you know, that's why I need medications Mm -hmm. for it. It's not going to go away. So that and then also the trauma, like you just don't get over trauma overnight Hmm. or even I really think ever like it's going to be I'm going to have constant flashbacks. It's just how I deal with them and how you know quickly I can work through it and that type of thing. It just like you said, it doesn't go away. It's a Hmm. constant process and you got to work it. Hmm. And that's something I'm trying to figure out. And even like I was talking about with vulnerabilities, that's something that you have to work on every day too it's not like oh i'm just gonna share my story all the time Mm -hmm. you know it's something that you have to make that conscious effort to be vulnerable with your support team and you know i'm not saying everyone has to share their story like i am (laughs) but it's it's something that you know like i said share with your support team the closest people to you and i think that's important too yeah (laughs) so huge i agree oh so it sounds like you had two key people in your life to your grandma who is supportive of you, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, when I was younger, I was close with my grandma. But as kind of time went on, she's been kind of manipulative and just Mm -hmm. someone I don't get along with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she did let me stay with her and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But we fought tooth and nail. Things are just kind of rocky in my family as it is. And so we don't have a close relationship Mm -hmm. anymore. I have a really close relationship with my great grandma. She's awesome. She's a spunky, (laughs) 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 spunky woman. And Mm -hmm. I look up to her. But growing up, I it it was hard. Yeah, I didn't Mm -hmm. really feel like I had too many people. My great grandma was kind of my my support person. Okay. yeah, I understand that. I understand how hard it is to not have family Mm -hmm. support yeah especially when you have a child too it's it's very hard yeah I don't have family support really Mm -hmm. either oh what I love is is the people who show up who aren't family I have amazing people in my life who are not my blood but they are my family Mm -hmm. for sure and it sounds like that's something that you really have also I do with Jamie and her family it's they've taken me in you know they they're huge people in my life and they've just been there for me the support has been (laughs) phenomenal you know they just they've been there and they constantly tell me all the time like we're not going anywhere you know we're here I have a Brene Brown problem. <laughs> Yay! Me too! <laughs> Something that she says, and I've, I've talked about in my blog post, where it's the people in the arena. Something that she says is, you know, your support people are not in the bleachers. They're not in the stands criticizing you or watching you while you fall. They're there in the arena with you, fighting with you, there for support and they're also there for your successes as well. Mm-hmm. And that's something with Jamie and my husband, like that's what I got. (laughs) And that's all I need, you know? And that's how I honestly feel is like, I have other support people too, but they're my main ones and they're there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love Brene Brown. I do too. And I love (laughs) that analogy because it's so true. So often we put way too much weight on the people who are in the stands criticizing and not dealing with their own stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's so important to look at the people who are right there with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you my two questions, and then I know people are going to want to know how to find you. So the first question is, is what do you feel has been the most vital to your growth? Honestly, there's been a lot, you know, like seeking help and that type of thing and my faith. But the biggest thing I really feel has been vital has been being vulnerable. That has really skyrocketed my healing and my relationships. You know, when I made that decision to be vulnerable, open, even when it makes me want to crawl under the covers and hide, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is it's helped my relationships. It's helped me heal. And that's something that I really want to stress is. Without vulnerability, we can't heal. 
Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've learned and what I've been told. And I finally got it. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that's been really, really vital to my healing and my growth. So mm. gave me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing, right? Yes. It's so true. It's so true. It's so scary and so necessary mm-hmm. at the same time. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely scary. Yes, it is. <laughs> but like you said, just as important. So. Yes, for sure. Well, look at you here <laughs> being all vulnerable. It's amazing. <laughs> like I said, I, I do feel that it's important and it's important to share my story. That's what I feel like I've had a calling for. Mm-hmm. And I have a passion for it. ever since I was young. It's, you know, I have felt this passion to help others, especially kids that have gone through similar things Mm -hmm. that I have Mm -hmm. and yeah like I said it's just it's just a passion (laughs) awesome all right what do you want to make sure people know so walking away from this what's the thing you want them to take away I do have three things that I want people to take away (laughs) the first one is it's okay not to be okay you know everyone kind of deals with that depressive state you know anxious we all don't have our stuff together. You know, it. we have bad days and that's okay. You know, I feel like it's important that we give ourselves the permission to feel the feels and cry it out if we need to. It's okay. You know, and that's something that I've had to personally work on too. It's not something that comes easy. But that kind of leads me to my second point, the importance of seeking help. It's incredibly important to, you know, if you can't get out of that depression, you can't you just feel like something's wrong all the time is it's important to to seek help either from your primary doctor psychiatrist therapist or even your support team to reach out and again there's it's strong it's brave it's not weakness because i feel like you know we we get into that where it's like i should be able to handle this myself Mm -hmm. you're not meant to handle it yourself you're meant to be in community and fellowship with other people that are there to support you and there's therapists out there there's people who are professionals that can help you Mm -hmm. and my last point is it only takes one person I statistically should be someone completely different you know I grew up Mm -hmm. in a, a very strong background that isn't easy and I feel the importance to kind of stress this where Jamie was my one person that kind of came into my life to walk beside me because like we talked about I didn't have that really growing up I didn't have that support um and you know it it kind of only took her to be like we're gonna get through this together you know I'm here for you and you know I'm not saying that everyone needs to take in an at-risk youth or anything like that but if you can step in for someone's life even for a season like you can make a huge impact on someone else's life and whether that is a kiddo or a friend, to be that one person at that time or long term, whatever that you feel called to do is I feel is incredibly important. So those are my <laughs> my three things. <laughs> mm. Awesome. All oh yes. <laughs> Everybody rewind and listen to those again. <laughs> so so powerful and so true. You have such amazing insight. <laughs> How old are you? 23. 23, everyone. You hear that? <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It's such powerful insight to have. It, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a walk in the park oh, moving no. <laughs> forward, but you're right. You keep referring to your support team, and I think we all need a support team. I agree. <laughs> we we definitely need that that help and that foundation and that that support in place Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I feel like even if you are going through therapy and stuff like that it's you need that in addition to it's not something that you know if you're just doing therapy or whatever I say just that's a huge step like I've said yeah and Mm -hmm. to have that extra people person totally yeah like you said it's a foundation yeah (laughs) which is why I created the meetup Mm -hmm. because community Yes, because I was seeing people in therapy one-on-one and knew they needed a place to find healthy relationships mm-hmm. outside of therapy. And it's hard it sometimes hard. to know, like, where do I go? What do I do? How do I find people? It's not like you can 
I mean, people don't go up to someone in the grocery store and say, hey, you want to be my friend? <laughs> there are some people that do that, though. It's true. It's true. Maybe we could try it more. But, but yeah, it's important to seek out opportunities, like growth-focused opportunities to be able to meet people, to add them to your support team mm-hmm. and be a part of their support team, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's two-way street. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yes. All right. Well... Savannah, let people know how they can find you. I know you have a blog, and where do you hang out most? Social media, how can people connect? My go-to social media is Facebook, so you can find me at Savannah R. Howe. That would be kind of the where you can see my blog, but also my blog is savannahrhow.home.blog. Hopefully I'll be able to get my domain and everything figured out there, but... Uh, that's where you can find me currently. Yeah. I also have an email address. You can contact me too. Again, savannahrhow at gmail.com. So. And I'll have the links to those in the show notes too. So people can just click on that and connect with you more easily. That sounds good. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your heart and your story so that we all can learn and grow from it and be better as well. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. (laughs) All right, my friends, what an awesome interview. We absolutely believe in the power of our stories and we are so very grateful to our guests who have the courage to speak their truth and share their heart experiences and light with all of us. If you want more of the WE podcast, make sure you head over to thewespot.com where you can find all of our episodes as well as the WE Spot blog. The WE Spot is your go-to spot for growth, connection, authenticity, and encouragement. You can also find us on social media. Head over to the We Spot Facebook and Instagram pages and get plugged in. You can also find me, Sarah Moneras, on my personal Facebook and Instagram pages as well. If you love the We Podcast, we would be thrilled for you to rate the podcast and write us a review. We want as many people as possible to be lifted up in growth and get connected with our community. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes dropping every single week. We can't wait to see you over on social media. Thank you for being here today. It means a lot to us. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, grow constantly, rise above, and always know you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.